You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast, the first episode of the year. I'm your host, AK, and I've got some great things lined up for you right after this. Summer, 1990. A teenage boy in trouble. An evil that only comes out at night. Only a straight-to-VHS movie can save him. From A. Kale, the author of, Beware the Night. Bad Dreams. A thrilling horror novel, now available on Amazon. Rated PG-13, for some thematic elements and mild violence. My guest on this episode is a veteran musician and composer. He has written the scores for a number of classics, including The Last Starfighter, Episodes of Amazing Stories, and A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which is my favorite of all his scores. In this interview, we talk about the music that inspires him, the magic of the Saint Clavier, and his latest album, LAX. Please welcome Craig Safin. What records made you fall in love with music as a kid? Oh, man. Uh, well, I think when I was really young, I loved uh, some of the big Broadway musicals. I loved South Pacific, Carousel, Oklahoma. And then I think, I'm trying to think, and then when I, that was when I was quite young. But then when I got to be more in my early teen years, I loved West Side Story. That was amazing. And at that point, I also started playing jazz. So I would buy Thelonious Monk records and Bill Evans records. Hampton Hawes was another keyboard player that I liked. And I, I listened to a lot of jazz and uh, still loved West Side Story. When I was 13, I remember reading Leonard Bernstein's book called The Joy of Music. And he talked about Stravinsky and the piece, The Rite of Spring, the ballet. So I got my money together, or I got an aunt, I think, to buy me Bernstein conducting The Rite of Spring. And that was the first classical record album I ever owned, because I never played classical. We never listened to it in my family's house. And that was where I started. I started classical music with Stravinsky. So that's sort of an unusual place to start. But I loved it. And then the other thing that happened, of course, uh, when I started high school was that the Beatles and I became a Beatle fanatic and a Rolling Stone fanatic. And so, so all their albums, Donovan, uh, The Doors, all those albums really influenced me. I'm very eclectic. I have musical tastes sort of all over the map. 
Yeah, I think your eclectic taste. Yeah, Extremely. shows up in your yeah. It shows up in your music. Um, uh, absolutely. Even, yeah, even in your scores, because as I got more into your music, you know, I was introduced to your music through uh, uh, the soundtrack to A Nightmare on Elm Street Four. Oh yeah. And then uh, I started, you know, delving deeper, and uh, I loved. And I still love and I still listen to your score to uh, Warning Signs. Yeah, people love that. That was, I had forgotten that score. And then I got a call, this is probably about four years ago, from Invader Records, which is a small label in in uh, the UK. And uh, they do a lot of really esoteric soundtracks. And they said, Oh, we love that score. We we want to do it. And they got the rights from Fox and I sent them the tapes and they did a beautiful uh, release with all new graphics. And they also did a two, a, a two disc vinyl release too. Not on that soundtrack as much warning sign, but on your almost all your other soundtracks and, and your solo work, uh, like Siren and uh, the Titanic record and this latest record, LAX, mm-hmm. the world music influences and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Korean percussion and the uh, percussion from different cultures, it all shows up on your records. And it even shows up on A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which I only noticed when I delved more into your music, when I listened to the, when I, because I listened to that score a lot. I use it as a, as a background when I'm working, when I'm writing and working, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite scores. Uh, so even, even on that score, you can hear the, the percussion. I, I, I don't know if you, if you, if that's, if that's actually acoustic percussion or that, or, or, or those are samples, uh, Every, through this. Yeah. That whole, uh, the whole nightmare, nightmare and Elm street four album is totally electronic. So it's all synthesizers and samples. That's there's not a live player on it except me. <laughs> that's, I played that's everything am- on it. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I'll get to that later. But before uh, I jump ahead too much, uh, I love your score to uh, Remo Williams. Uh, mm-hmm. The movie was released in 1985. Mm-hmm. The the score has uh, a very appealing mix of synth and Korean percussion. And you've mentioned that it's one of your favorite scores. So can you talk a little bit about how you got that job and what went into the recording of that score? Right. Well, I got, I can't remember how I got the job exactly, but the score was, uh, I probably got it right after the last Starfighter because that was when I was doing more big orchestral scores with melodies. So um, the idea of that score was that it would be an adventure score. So it needed a big orchestra, but I didn't want to just do another John Williams kind of score. So I thought, well, I'm going to do as much electronics in it as possible. And then there was a subplot uh, that was Korean. There was a Korean character. And I thought, well, I'm going to use Korean. I'm going to find out what is Korean music. I don't want it to just be generic, you know, Asian music. 
guy. That was sort of offensive to me. So I really went over to the UCLA ethnomusicology library because this was before Spotify. You couldn't just find this stuff in a computer. You had to literally go to the library and check out recordings and listen to them on headphones. And I learned a lot about Korean music. And then the other thing was that here in Los Angeles, there's a huge Korean population. There is a Korean daily newspaper there. I think we have the largest Korean population outside of Seoul here in Los Angeles. There's a whole part of Los Angeles called K-Town, meaning Koreatown, with thousands of restaurants and all that. So there was a Korean orchestra available, and I used them. So this turned out to be the most complex score, because to combine uh, a symphony orchestra, 24 tracks of synclavier, and the Korean instruments all into one piece of music was really challenging. But, but I like the way it, it came out. I mean, it's extremely eclectic, but it's a lot of fun. I wanted to have a lot of fun with Remo's training sequences. So I used a lot of uh, the Korean percussion and the Korean uh, woodwind and string instruments. And uh, I think it really paid off. The tuning was tough, you know, with Korean instruments. The tuning is a not quite uh, Western tuning, but they did great. They did a great job. The players did a great job. Um, the other person who I thought was fantastic was the engineer who mixed all these sounds together, Dennis Sands, who's a, a great engineer. You mentioned the Saint Clavier, which is an instrument that I got into more and more, listening to a lot of scores and a lot of music and uh, you know, delving deep into synthesized music and synthesizers. And I've discovered that many of my favorite scores and favorite albums, because I'm really into electronic music, as you can tell, of course, mm -hmm. I discovered that one of my favorite elements in all these scores and, and records is the Saint Clavier. So can you can you talk a little bit about what do you think makes the, the Saint-Clavier so special? Right. Well, uh, the reason you like Warning Sign is it's completely performed by a Saint-Clavier, the entire score. Um, the the Saint-Clavier was a sort of a beast. It cost, I think, $85,000. That was in 1983 or something, which was a lot of money. And uh, it, it had a combination of FM synthesis, but then it also had the ability to sample, meaning to record snippets of sounds and put them on the keyboard. It used giant floppy disks that were about 10 inches uh, in diameter. And I would sample all sorts of things, uh, pianos, and then I would reverse the samples and voices. And you can hear all that in uh, Warning Sign. And it just, it was uh, just sort of a very complex instrument. It came with three big notebooks of instructions. Uh, it was really hard to learn. 
but it had a great sound. And the synthesizer especially had a very thick uh, sound that had a lot of interesting noise in it, like wind noise, and it would pan left and right and hard to control, but it, it, it had a very rich sound and the sampling was great. But at that time, you could only sample one note at a time. So you couldn't play a chord, you could only play one note. And then if you wanted another note, you had to put on a different sample and record it on multi-track. Then the later synclaviers became multiphonic. And there were a lot of composers. I mean, I don't know how many, but I, I'll, uh, quite a few of them, I believe, had a synclavier back then. But it was, you know, you had to be working because it was very expensive to have one. You mentioned that the score to A Nightmare on M Street 4 was a totally synthesized score. Right. So you used the synclavier on that record, on that soundtrack as well, right? Yes, yes. But it wasn't the only thing. So on, uh, on Warning Sign, I only used synclavier for the whole score. That's why it has that sort of eerie sound, the whole thing. On Elm Street, I used synclavier, but then I used a lot of other outboard gear. Uh, you know, some Roland, some DX7, I guess. I, I don't remember all of the different instruments, but at that point, uh, synthesizers were a little more sophisticated and you ran them through a computer with MIDI and so it, 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 it was easier to put a lot of different synthesizers playing at the same time and work on, in that way. So there's a lot more variety of sound in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you still use the Synclavier? No, I got rid of it years ago. And um, I moved totally to plugins in my computer. I don't use any outboard gear anymore. Uh, you know, I'm not doing a lot of movies anymore. And I don't really, I don't know that anybody's using a synclavier anymore. I think you can get a virtual synclavier now. I've seen the plugin, but I haven't bought it yet. You know, because that's what they're doing is that they're, they're modeling the sounds of all those 1980s synthesizers. They do really good modeling. And then you just basically put it in your computer. You just, and, uh, it, you, it sounds pretty close to the original, if not exactly. I want to talk a little bit about your latest album, okay. LAX, uh, mm -hmm. which I listened to twice so far. Oh, great. I, I like that album very, very much. I, I love the opening track and I love Pandora's Box. It's one of my favorite tracks on the album. Oh, and, good. Yeah, I like and, I, and I love... Um, what was that track? Uh, I guess it was Smog, I think, the, the, the last track. Oh, right? yeah. That's sort yeah. Of a and Summer Dreams as well. I like so much. Yeah. Uh, that album is, is, is basically a concept album. So yeah. what was the idea behind that album? Okay. So uh, over the last six, seven years, I've done three albums. They're all concept albums. Because I think I think of music visually and dramatically. So I'm not really into just doing a bunch of separate non-related tracks. So the latest LAX is basically 
a musical journey of my view of Los Angeles and growing up in Los Angeles. So I was born here. My father was born here. I'm a, one of the few natives. When you come to Los Angeles, a lot of the people have come here from other places. But I was actually born here. And so a lot of the tunes are, are memories of being in uh, Los Angeles. For example, you mentioned Pandora's Box. That was a small club on Sunset Boulevard. And it had some live music. And then it had a lot of where you just hang out and drink coffee or something. And they would play music. And I remember going there when I was in high school and just hearing a Bob Dylan album played and going, wow, who's that? That's Bob. Oh, my God. And it was painted like a candy box in pinks and greens. You can look it up. And if you saw uh, the last Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he recreates the exterior of that. Uh, they, it's not mentioned, but there's a scene where two of Manson's girls are sitting on a bus stop and behind them is Pandora's box. So he actually recreated it. So the whole album is full of references to Los Angeles, Los Angeles X, EX, meaning the Los Angeles that is no longer here. And then some con more contemporary uh, thoughts about Los Angeles. And each track is completely different, different styles, different instrumentation. So it's sort of like a, a, a journey. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a, of a of a storytelling journey. Yes, uh, there are snippets of like dialogue on um, on the song "Muscles, Tattoos, yeah. and Veins," which is I think it's a hilarious song. It's the the music is wonderful, but it's hilarious. Yeah, every time I listen to it, I, I find it very very funny. Yeah, it is totally funny. Uh, I just had this, I, I just remember going to Muscle Beach when I was a kid. That's where all the, you know, like all the muscle guys worked out on the beach in full view of, of just people walking by. It's still there. But I remember going there where I was this little skinny kid. And, and I remember just seeing these got massive guys and their veins were popping out of their arms and <laughs> legs. And, and I just thought of it and it was it just seemed humorous to me. So I did this sort of, I don't know if it's sort of a Kraftwerk kind of track, you know, it's a uh, sort of like one of those rock and roll synth tracks, a dance track. And then I just told my daughter, who's a singer, I said, well, just improvise like you're, you know, you're this uh, blonde girl coming over and looking at all the guys and, and use a Swedish accent. So she did that and, you know, then I sort of cut it together and found the funny part. And it, to me, it's just hysterical. To me, it's like a, I laugh every time I hear it. So I'm glad you thought it was funny. I wasn't sure if anybody else would. No, I found it very, very funny. And even without knowing the, the, the references, and of course, we come from different generations, but sure. it sounds funny. And uh, it's just a great track. It's very original. I've never, I've never heard anything like it. Even, even within your work, I've never heard anything like it. Right. Well, I, I started in rock and roll, and I started doing synthesizers. You know, when, the, when before they even had keyboards on them, back in the '60s. So, 
I have a, a rock background. You just don't hear it that often in film music. Speaking of L.A. and as, uh, as, as a person who was born and raised in L.A. and you wrote and recorded and produced this album, which is basically a tribute to L.A., how much do you think L.A. has changed? Because when you watch movies now shot in L.A. and you read about L.A., uh, a lot of what's written about L.A. is that the L.A. of the movies especially of the 70s and 80s and even the 90s is basically gone. So do you think L.A. still retains that, you know, mythic cinematic atmosphere that's, that's in the movies or is it something different now? Well, I think it, it is... There are lots of places in L.A. where you can relive the past. I mean, it's all over. And L.A. still is a media center. I mean, you know, it's still where the bulk of movies are, if not made, or uh, produced. And, uh, of course, it's changed. There's so many more people here than there used to be. Uh, there's, it, It's not as relaxed as it used to be. I think it used to be a much more chill kind of environment. Uh, it, it has all the problems that back in the 50s were ignored, you know, problems, racial problems that didn't affect most of LA. They would just affect the, the you know, one or one area of LA. And now it's really much more homogenous and uh, it's also still a very balkanized city in that there, there are a lot, every little neighborhood has its own sort of character. But I think there's definitely a lot of LA that, that hasn't changed. Of course, things change, of course. But uh, like New York City, it's still, there's still a lot of the old New York, New York City there, but it's not the same. It's not the same as it was in the 60s, New York, but you can still see a huge amount of history and, and it still feels like New York. It still has the energy of New York and LA still has that very specific energy, but you have to look harder to find it, I think. I always thought that LA was subtle in a way, whereas when you go to New York, you walk out of your building and a million things happen to you. It's so intense. Here, nothing happens to you. Nobody cares. You just walk out and it's quiet. And it, it's, it's a, LA still retains its basic character. It's changed too. But uh, so is, you know, the whole country's changed. Everything changes. What about film scores? Because you mentioned that you don't, you don't do film scores as much now. Does right. the idea of doing a film score still excites you or, or, or do you like doing your own thing now like LAX and Siren more than, than doing a score to a movie? Right. Well, I did scores to a movie for almost 30 years and I worked a lot. I mean, I did lots and lots, lots of movies and television. So I think right now, uh, just on a career level, I'm not getting 
that much work. And honestly, I don't care that much. At this age, I don't really want to be, uh, I don't know how to say it. It's just when you do a film, you really work hard. People are on you, your producers and studios and directors and editors and everybody is, it's, it's a very pressurized situation. And it's only gotten more so over the years. Uh, and unless it's a project that I'm really interested in, I don't need to put myself through it. I don't, I worked enough that I don't need the money. And I love doing my albums. Like I said, I, I've done three of them and I'm very, very proud of them. And they express a part of me that film scores can't because film scores, the music really is always in service of the film. You know, most film scores, you don't even notice there's a film score. And that's what they're, they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be uh, subconscious. You feel them. You don't really listen to them. So I would do a film score if it came around. But if it doesn't, I don't care one way or the other. I'm not actively pursuing films. When I was younger, I was pursuing them. You know, you had to to have a career. You had to be out there and be aggressive and work day and night. But I'm, you know, I'm older now. I'm not that excited. I don't need to prove anything. So uh, that's sort of how I feel. I'm happy with what I'm doing, actually. Do you still listen to, to film scores? Not as much as I used to. And I, uh, I don't really listen to them unless I see the film. And uh, I, I teach a class uh, to young filmmakers about how music works in film. And we listen to a lot of film scores in that, but they're mostly older scores. Um, but I don't, I, I try to listen. So now it's just, uh, I haven't been to a theater in a couple of years because of COVID, but it's getting to be Academy Awards season now, you know, now that it's November. And so what I'll do is I'll start all the movies now uh, that are up for consideration are streamed uh, through the Academy uh, website. So I'll start watch probably after Thanksgiving, I'll start watching all those movies and then I'll, I'll listen to the scores as I watch them. But I don't listen to scores outside of movies much at all. So for someone who's new to your work and who is who's just into music, you know, someone who doesn't care if the if the if the music is a score or is an album or whatever. So if you want to introduce someone to your work, which albums or scores would you recommend to that person? Well, I think the the score that's the most fun and that I'm most known for is The Last Starfighter. Uh, that is not on Spotify. I think the main title is, but there are some rights issues that I'm trying to get solved. But you can definitely hear it. Uh, you can buy the CD, I guess. But you can also go to my website and on the projects page, each project you can click and then hear the score. So if you anything 
pretty much all my scores are available. All the major scores are available on my website. Just go to where it says projects, click on the name of the project, and it'll take you to the score. Uh, I think the other one is uh, Sirens and LAX. Those are on Spotify and Amazon. Uh, for, for electronics, uh, Elm Street and Warning Sign, and even Secrets of the Titanic, which was a National Geographic documentary about the discovery of the Titanic. Uh, those are good. Remo Williams is a lot of fun and a really good score. That's on Spotify. The other ones I really like are Stand and Deliver, which again, we're trying to get on Spotify, but these things just take time. Nightmare on Elm Street's not on spot. None of the Nightmare scores are on Spotify, but they're working on it. And supposedly by the end of the year, Warner Brothers will have them all up on the digital platforms. But that's sort of, that's sort of it. If you go to my website, you can really get a good overall view of, of my music. There's also on Spotify, a this is Craig Saffin playlist, but it's missing a lot of my big scores because uh, they haven't, they don't have digital rights to some of the older scores, but I'm trying to solve that. Yeah. On Spotify, they have all your, your concept albums are there and, yeah. uh, and warning sign is there and Remo Williams is there. So there's, there's a bunch, you know, yeah. there. Yeah. There's some less, uh, more obscure titles like lady beware. I see is there warning sign. I'm looking, uh, Titanic is there. So hopefully those will grow. I think a lot of times when those albums were produced, nobody was thinking of getting digital rights. And so now they sort of have to go back and get the digital rights to those albums before they go up on uh, Spotify or Amazon or any of the streaming platforms. So what are you working on now? Well, uh, what am I working on now? Uh, I just, I was commissioned uh, by a, a symphony here in Los Angeles to do a new score for the silent film, Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney. And that was about, so it was about three years ago. And I did it and it was performed by the symphony and a big outdoor, con they do big outdoor concerts for a couple thousand people. And they have big, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, the big screens, jumbotrons playing the film and the orchestra and a choir. It was a lot of fun. So I've recorded that uh, over this COVID period. I've managed to record the score. We finished mixing it. And now I'm about to uh, see if, one of the film music labels will release it. So I'm, I haven't even started that, but that's on my calendar to start. Now that I'm finished with the album, now I'm going to cut it in album form because this film is like an hour and a half. So that's really too much music, I think. So I'm going to cut it into segments and we'll see uh, if one of the uh, companies, one of the labels that specialize in film music will release it. I think they will. So uh, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm not really working on a new album besides that. 
that sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that film. I, I love oh, silent you know movies. It. Sorry? You know it, huh? Yeah, yeah. The Phantom okay. of the Opera. It's quite an, quite an amazing movie. Yeah, yeah. The, I have all the versions, you know. There, there is the oh. silent version. Sure. And then there is the 1929 re-recorded version. And then there is the one with the Technicolor sequence. And yeah. It's just amazing. <laughs> I love that movie. I'm a huge, huge fan of the book as well. I read the book and uh, I love, uh, I love, uh, you know, silent movies and gothic cinema. It's one of the things I love and, and, and study. I think it's up on my website. I have to go check. But I think, uh, I think I posted the version that we recorded. I think uh, the live version we did. I think it's posted up on my website. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to to listen to that. It's it's it sounds amazing because knowing your scores and your work, like I kind of have an idea or can imagine what you would do with it a little bit. A little. So, it, it's not electronic because I wrote it for a symphony. So it, and you can't really do electronics with this live symphony unless you're in a very controlled situation. And this is outdoors in a big park by the water and it, it it would just be disastrous so it's all orchestra and some vo voices i look forward to to getting a copy of that or listening to it on your website and uh, i don't want to take any more of your time craig thank you very much for okay, joining me and uh, i hope it takes less than a year for us to to, to talk again Sure, anytime. And, and, and thank you very much for joining me on the show. Okay, I'm a great talking to you again. And anytime you want to talk, just let me know. Thank you so much. For every Earthling who's ever imagined traveling beyond the stars. Maybe there is a starfighter left. I love you, Alex Rogan. Comes the unforgettable story of one who made it. Last Starfighter. L.A., the most famous city in the world. It is immortalized in movies, books, and albums. Every person who wants to make movies or become a celebrity dreams of coming to L.A., the land of dreams, the birthplace of Hollywood. L.A. is a place of magic, of mystery, of fairy tales, light and dark. It is the place where noir fiction was created, where people as varied as Candace Bergen, Tim Burton, Jeff Bridges, Coolio, Robert Stack were born. And it is the place where writers like Raymond Chandler, Brett Easton Ellis, Karim Abdul-Jabbar, and Ray Bradbury called home. But L.A. has many faces and many sides, and I'd like to take a look at some of my favorite books and movies that take place in L.A. There is Less Than Zero, released in 1987, one of the most stylish and harrowing movies to come out of the 80s, and a favorite of the late great Roger Ebert, who surprisingly called it one of the best movies he ever saw about addiction. 
much to the chagrin of the uh, novel's original writer, Brad Easton Ellis, who didn't like the movie at all and thought that it basically diluted his vision. But I agree with Roger Ebert and in some ways the movie is better than the book it is based on. Though it's a very dark film, it's much more humane than the novel and it presents L.A. in a darkly romantic way and I don't think there is a movie that was produced in the 80s that showcased 1980s L.A. in the same way that this movie does. The Black Dahlia by James Elroy is one of the best crime novels ever written. It's a kinetic, atmospheric slice of pitch black noir. And the book is part mystery, part horror, and part pure James Elroy. And it's arguably Elroy's best novel. It was adapted into a movie in the early 2000s, I think. And the movie, which was directed by Brian De Palma, was okay but it didn't really capture the feel of the novel that well and it was too over the top and it completely ruined the ending so i highly recommend the book but i don't really recommend the movie adaptation my next selection is stretching it a little bit since it takes place in los angeles county not the city of la but i had to include it Beverly Hills Cop from 1985 still remains to this day Eddie Murphy's finest hour. Before he became a brand name and lost some of his charm in bigger and less entertaining movies, including the sequels to Beverly Hills Cop. But the original is one of those movies that gets better with age. The jokes, most of which are beyond politically incorrect, still work to this day, and its portrayal of the city, which is both affectionate and scathing, has never been bettered. Fright Night, released in 1985, takes place in Iowa, but it was shot in L.A., and the nighttime sequences are vintage L.A., with its neon-drenched streets and nightclubs, and whenever I watch Fright Night and its equally fun sequel, which was also partially shot in L.A., I enjoy spotting the locations and feeling that unique vibe of mid to late 80s L.A. that these movies capture and which you don't get anywhere else in the world. I'd like to end this episode with a clip from one of my favorite classic TV shows, Dragnet, which is set in L.A. This clip is from one of the show's best episodes, The Big Casing. Thanks for listening, and please join me again on the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. 
The names have been changed to protect the innocent. been listening to the dark fantastic podcast ahmed khalifa is a filmmaker and novelist he is the writer director of several short films and a feature released on netflix and the author of a number of novels and short stories including beware the stranger available on amazon